Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv. This is the Tuesday edition, and we're, uh, we're, we're stalling a little bit, waiting for Scott to come in. Scott's not here yet, but I will introduce Stephen. Stephen is with us. Hi, Stephen. How you doing? Hey, Drew. How's it going, everybody? Good to see you. Uh, Jeff Smeltzer from Exton. Jeff, are you there? Jeff was there. I see his icon. Okay. I am here now. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll tell you, we've just been having some fun with the technical stuff just five minutes before the program start. Yeah. Well, I was late coming for another Bible study, and so I'm just squeezing, squeezing in here under the wire. That's quite all right. We're going to try to stall a little bit. Uh, normally, we don't stall, but we have to because the topic today. Well, first of all, let me get to take care of some housekeeping. If okay. you're joining us in from the Zoom app from BibleQuest.tv, you can use the app. Click on the icon button if you want to call in using your computer uh, or use the text, the Q&A box to text in your questions and comments, and we hope you will. And if you're coming in through Stephen's Facebook page. Yep. If you're joining us through the Facebook page, as always, please just leave your comments and questions in the comment section below. And we will get to those as soon as we can. We appreciate all the questions we've gotten in recent weeks. It's a profitable thing. and We can engage you guys and you can give us some things to think about. And um, even if your question is not on the topic we're currently discussing, feel free to leave it in the comments. We might leave it for a future so show, but um, we love to hear from you guys and hope that we can uh, all learn together from God's word. Oh, great. I'm, so, I'm saying great to what I'm seeing. I'm seeing Scott Smelter coming on board. Um, Chaos and computer problems here. Sorry about that. That's quite all right. I, I'm just saying everybody, um, fellow panelists and also people in the audience. We're just having a lot of fun five minutes before the program goes live with technical stuff and things getting going. But we're glad you're all here. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry for the delay. That's quite all right. So I posted on our the Facebook, the, the Bible Quest Facebook page. I bet you most people are not aware that... Um, Yeah, Scott, I got a reminder here to change your resolution because you're going to be sharing some screens, right? Yes, I did. I changed it. Okay, cool. But I, I'm sure most people, well, I wasn't aware of it, that uh, Jesus, between 12 years old and 30 years old, he was actually living in India. And, <laughs> and what I also didn't know was that he lived probably about 100 years old and it was buried in Japan. Is that right, Scott? Well, it depends on who you ask. If you ignore the Bible and you go to Shingo, Japan, you're going to find out he lived, he lived in Japan, went back to Palestine, where his brother was crucified, then went back to Japan. Uh, or if you look at some other areas, I'm going to go ahead and share screen here. Uh, I'm not seeing my share screen. I'm just a mess today. That's the way I felt a few minutes ago, so I'm glad it's your turn now. <laughs> yeah. I have lost sight of all of you guys. Oh, there you are. All right. I'm going to enlarge you. I'm going to share my screen, and I'm going to pull this up and apologize for the delay, and hopefully right about now we'll be working. Okay. 
Do you see a screen that has a whole bunch of books about Jesus living in India? No. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, I'm a total disaster today. That's all right. We're going to start incorporating a comedy section here. <laughs> <laughs> we can feature this episode in the outtakes reel. Yeah. Maybe at, the, at the end of the year, we can go back and do all of the Except the those, are, those are supposed to be funny, and this isn't particularly no. funny. <laughs> I'm hitting the share screen button and it's just refusing to do it. I, oh, wait. Maybe. Maybe. There we go. Ah, we're getting there. I see something start. Here we there go. There we go. Okay. All right. So after I've wasted four minutes. Sorry, people. All right. So this is a topic I wasn't familiar to until recently when a friend of mine wrote a book and he asked me to review it. And it claims that Jesus grew up in India. Uh, that from age that he left Nazareth at age 13 and he traveled and he spent a number of years in India with Hindus and Buddhists. And then at age 29 went back to Palestine. Uh, so just a bunch, there's a movie out about it. There's a, or a documentary BBC did a thing on it. Here's a bunch of the books and it all goes back to this character right here. This is Nicholas Norovich who was one year old uh, when Kishin looks a lot older there, Scott. Yes, yes, he does. <laughs> but when he, when he was one, that's about the time that Constantine Tischendorf uh, discovered Codex Sinaiticus. Was he like emperor in Rome or something, Constantine Tischendorf? No, no. Constant, Jeff, why don't you tell us who Tischendorf was? Well, no, he, uh, he's a guy who made a great discovery at a monastery um, in uh, in the Sinai Peninsula where – um, there were some monks who had preserved these ancient manuscripts, and one of them uh, turns out to be what we now know as Codex Sinaiticus, which is a manuscript that has the Old Testament in Greek as well as the New Testament, and it's one of the oldest manuscripts that has basically the whole Bible. And uh, it was written about AD 350, or within a little over 300 years after Jesus' death. And um, so it's a very important ancient manuscript. And that's not the guy on your screen. This is a Tischendorf wannabe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tischendorf procu- so Tischendorf went to this remote monastery and procured uh, an ancient manuscript for what government? Um, England or Russia? Russians, for the Russian. It was, it was Russia. given to, uh, to the Tsar, Alexander. Uh-huh. Later... Later, after the Soviets come to power, they're not interested in the biblical manuscript anymore, so they sell it to England. It's in the British Museum now. Mm. And to show you the value of an ancient manuscript that important, in the 1930s, it sold for about half a million dollars uh, when the Soviets stole it. So that is, I believe, who this guy on your screen wants to be. He's a Russian, and he's trying to duplicate Tischendorf, except he's going to make it up. So <laughs> he's going to find something, but it, what he's going to find is not real. Yeah, he's going to find it. And so um, here we go. He, he's going to travel, and he did travel to India, apparently. Uh, there's a medical record of him being there for a toothache. And so in the year 1887, while he's in northern India in the area of Kashmir, he says that he went to one man monastery, and the Lama was talking about this Isa, which is the Arabic word for Jesus. 
and he was the greatest of all their Dalai Lamas. And as he keeps talking about him, he realizes, so the story goes, that this is Jesus and that he had, he had been there. He, he tried to correct the Hindus on their idolatry. He studied under the Buddhist. He went back to Palestine, was crucified, and then some merchants that year from Jerusalem came to India and told about what had happened. And so he wants to see the manuscript, and he gets to another monastery, the Himis Monastery up there um, in this Tibet, and uh, he hears, yes, they, they've got this record. And, but they can't show up right then. They don't know where it is. So then later he's back. And finally, after pleading, he gets them to show him the manuscripts. And he pulls down a couple of uh, old manuscripts and scattered here and there, these references, and he compiles them. And the story, so it goes, is that Jesus from age 13 to 29 uh, traveled east and was in India most of that time. You can go online and read uh, his book, The Unknown Life of Jesus Christ. There's a whole bunch of stuff about his trip to India, and then he gives the text. Uh, so any questions so far, any comments so far? Just the, the idea that this Notovich kind of was a Tischendorf wannabe. Tischendorf had made this great discovery or find of this ancient manuscript of the Bible, and the idea that Notovich was impressed with that and kind of wanted the same kind of reputation. What, what indications lead you to that conclusion? Are there things where Notovich talks about Tischendorf or um, is it just the way he presented his information that helps you make that connection? He's, he, I haven't seen him mention Tischendorf, but he's very familiar with actually liberal theology of the time. So he's, 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 he's not a good Bible student, but he's familiar with liberal theology. Okay. And so known what was going on in academic circles. And he's Russian. That had been procured for the Russians. And the idea of going to a remote monastery, he picked a spot. The Himalayas in the late 1800s were one of the more remote places, you know, on the continent. And so he's picking a place that's going to be hard kind of to get to. And now he's going to encourage people. He's going to say, hey, if you will do a scientific expedition and come down here and check it out, you can confirm it's true. Unfortunately for him, people did go down there and check it out. <laughs> so we'll see what happens after that. Um, but here's one thing he says, because he contradicts the Bible in a number of ways. And he says, the version I present to the public, one compiled three or four years after the death of Jesus, from accounts of eyewitnesses and contemporaries, has much more probability of being in conformity with truth than the Gospels, which he says are written later. Now, any book you read on this will, will often give a list of supposed witnesses or people cited as credentials or believing in it. They, they'll list a Supreme Court justice, uh, William Douglas, who is not a witness to it. Uh, but they claim that he, they say, uh, one book says all of these people went, everybody that went and checked it out went away believing it was true. And then they'll cite these names. Elizabeth Casperi, connected with the Montessori School, which is quite famous. And uh, a well-known Swami in 1922 says he saw the manuscript. We'll get to that in just a second. But first off, what this is, this is one of several elusive Jesus was here documents of the 1800s and 1900s. So in the 1800s, who claimed that he found a manuscript 
written on gold that said Jesus was in the new world. Joseph Smith. Founder of the, of the yeah. Mormons. Yeah. Yeah. And every book of Mormon has what right in the front part? The testimony of the witnesses. witnesses. Yeah, who saw the golden plates. But do we get to see the golden plates? No. No, because the angel took them up to heaven. Uh, and so here, the manuscripts discovered by Norvich, no longer available. And here, a lot of people don't know about this. This is Christ's last will and testament from Shingo, Japan. This is from the museum brochure. Archaeologists from an international society for the research of ancient literature discovered the scripture in 1936, but unfortunately they were discovered during World War II, so it only has a copy. But if you go to Shingo, Japan, <laughs> one thing in common, you can't see any of these now. These are the street signs in Shingo, Japan. The road signs are directly right to the tomb of Christ. In Japan. They claim... Japan, yeah. So Notovich's book claims Jesus's, you know, youth was spent in India. Uh -huh. In Shingo, Japan, they claim he spent his youth in Japan from 21 to 33. Then they say he went back to Palestine. Uh, and uh, then his brother was crucified. And then wait, wait, wait he came who's, back. Whose brother was crucified? Jesus's. They say, that they say Jesus wasn't crucified. They say his brother was. And listen, there's ten to 20,000 people per year that visit this place. Uh, Shingo, Japan, to, to see the museum and the supposed tomb of Christ. Oh, I misquoted um, you. I thought you said 30,000 when I posted. I thought 30. So you're saying ten to 20,000 a year? Ten to 20,000 a year, yeah. That's still, that's still a good and, uh, Yeah. And so they say he went back there, he farmed rice, he died at the age of 106, and they had the ancient will and testament, but after World War II, they say, unfortunately, it disappeared. But we're told archaeologists looked at it. Well, they have a copy of it, and you can go in the museum, and there is their copy of the last will and testament. Well, now, I can't read Jeff, but go ahead, Jeff. Well, all right, what is there to tell us this is the last will and testament of Jesus? I mean, like, did he sign it or anything? Yes, yes, he did. It is signed. It is signed. Jesus Christ, the Father of Christmas. <laughs> so, so, so we, we can kind of control yourself. We can kind of dismiss this one. One of the top, besides the fact that Jesus didn't die on the cross, didn't rise from the dead, and spent all this time in Japan and signed his name, <laughs> Father of Christmas, <laughs> as if we needed more. Uh, another telltale sign is this whole story did not exist before the 1930s or so. So you're saying uh, this is, uh, you're saying, you're saying this is highly credible. <laughs> All right, okay. All right, now. There's a lot of people taking this, though, more seriously. He was debunked thoroughly in the late 1800s. Notovich was. Yes. The guy who found the evidence of Jesus going to India. Yes, totally debunked. But a few years went by, people forgot about it, and then a swami went to check it out, and the lama, the chief lama at the monastery, showed him the manuscript 
and translated for him, and he confirmed it was true. So that got this going again. Just very briefly, um, let's notice this, the difference here. One thing is that with the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, at the top, with Codex Sinaiticus in the middle, and even with nonsense Gnostic writings like Nag Hammadi, we are <coughs> dealing with ancient texts, and those texts can be seen and read. Uh, Sinaiticus and Codex, uh, uh, Codex Sinaiticus and the Dead Sea Scrolls can be viewed online. Jeff, do you have uh, Codex Sinaiticus where you can pull that up and yeah. show us how yeah. that works? Yeah. yeah, I'll share my screen real quickly here. I'm going to kill yours and share mine. Okay, so I'm actually going to share two different screens here sequentially. So first of all, um, what I'm sharing right now is uh, a portion of the Codex Sinaiticus, a page of Codex Sinaiticus, and this is a page from the Gospel of Luke. This would be from starting up here. It's in Luke the 18th chapter, and then I'm going to in this manuscript, Jeff, about what's the date of this manuscript you're showing us? About 8350. Uh, in other words, um, 1660 years ago or so. And the thing about this is, what, what we're saying is these, these letters right here, this is a photograph of this manuscript, and these letters we are looking at were penned by the hand of a scribe uh, some 1660 or so years ago. Um, in AD 350, and we can look at his handwriting and what he wrote, and what that says right there is, and Jesus said to him, uh, yet in you lacks, uh, there is lacking, uh, let's see, uh, lacks, uh, no, uh, and then the let, uh, and yet, <laughs> let me see here, uh, and Jesus said to him, uh, yet to you lacks uh, something. All things whatsoever you have, uh, sell and give to the poor. So this is the story of the rich man to whom Jesus speaks. We can read it. We can look right. at it. We're looking at something that was written um, in 8350. And this is not when Luke was composed. Luke was composed, I would say, in the early 60s but it would have been copied and copied. And then this copy was made from prior copies around 350 AD. Yeah, around 350. I don't mean to say it's exactly that year, but yeah. Right, right. Okay, so that's an example of a real manuscript, a valuable manuscript, and something that's historically valuable. And that's the one, uh, Tischendorf, yeah. that's the one Tischendorf found. Right. And if in India there was an ancient manuscript you know, going way back then, and it really told of Jesus in India. Can you imagine how much that would be worth? A lot of money. And so, well, why is nobody coming up with it? Well, because it doesn't exist. So let's continue here and look at a little bit more evidence. Oh, same thing with uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's Isaiah. This is a copy of Isaiah from about 150 years before Jesus is born. And you can zoom in on whichever text you want. There's Isaiah 53, verse 6, which is almost, there is, there is more similarity between this text and the Masoretic text of a thousand years later than there is between a King James Version and a New American Standard Version of, of Isaiah 53. It is just remarkably word for word. 
Uh, so we're, this, talk, we're talking about authentic stuff here that was written way yeah. back. It's, re, it's representations yeah. of the scriptures pinned uh, a couple thousand years ago. Whereas with the scrolls supposedly that were there at the monastery of Hummus, uh, this is a guy that used to be the director of tourism who seems to take it seriously. But he says for a long time, no one has been able to see the scrolls, you know, despite several efforts. And another guy, the scrolls are no longer there. There's nothing no scrolls. Going back to 1894, when it first came out, there were a Moravian missionary went to the monastery and saw that the story wasn't true. And he, he put a note to that in like the New York Post. Uh, in 1894, an Orientalist who he was the editor, he would later be the editor of like all these Hindu, you know, scriptures and everything. Um, and remember, it was under British rule at the time. He just, just, uh, blasted it when it first came out because he knew if it wasn't real, if it had been, it would have been cataloged already. Uh, Notovich in his second edition, he replies and he says, well, the truth is indeed the verses I gave a translation in my book are probably not to be found in any kind of catalog because they're scattered through more than one book with no title. So that's why you can't find them. Uh, so remember originally he said, hey, if you'd send a scientific expedition, you could find them. Uh, Mueller, who already knows about the writings uh, uh, of the Hindus and Buddhists and such, says there's no such thing. Then he thought, well, you wouldn't really be able to find it. It wouldn't be listed uh, because it's all scattered about. And then he says, why does the Lama of Hemis refuse to answer, you know, to vouch for him? Other people uh, went and asked, and he says, well, they're suspicious, and I was able to find out because I had I knew how to do Eastern diplomacy. Well, then 1895, Professor Douglas, who was teaching in India, traveled up to Hemis, did an interview with the main Lama there, and he said, "Soon, soon, soon, Mana me Dug," which is Tibetan for lies, 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 nothing but lies. <laughs> so, Notovich is just refuted. It's it it was a hoax. And it kind of dies until 1922. 1922, this guy, who was a prolific author, uh, he was head of the Vedanta Society in New York. And while in New York, he came across Norovich's old book and was intrigued by it. He traveled to Tibet when he got back to India. He went all the way up there to, to, to the Himis. And it, he wanted to see if it's true. It's, he made inquiries with the lamas and came to know it was true. He requested to be allowed to see the book. The lama took a manuscript from the shelf, showed it to the Swami. He got some portions of manuscript translated, and then he starts giving the text about Jesus in India. Okay, comments, questions so far? He took only one manuscript out? Yes. But didn't one Go ahead. You're going to answer my question. In Notovich's original story, he said the Lama took down two manuscripts yellowed with age. But then when pressed, there's no such thing. He said, well, actually, they're scattered among many different books with no name. And yet in 1922, a Lama does what? He pulls out one, one volume and says, this is it. And it's right there. <laughs> you know, it, it, he's got it right there. Yeah, so that's suspicious. Um, Everything's bunch of the, looking suspicious. Is this kind of like yeah. the Ark of the Covenants over there in Ethiopia? Uh, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. 
now, I think they showed the Swami something. I think they duped him, and, and we'll see why. They list other witnesses, but a lot of these are just people who said there's legends and rumors over here, but they don't claim to see the manuscript. Swami claimed to see the manuscript. That's this kind of key. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. That's this Abedananda guy. Yeah, Swami Abedananda. Okay. He requested to be allowed to see the book. This is from his book. The Lama who's acting as their guide took a manuscript from the shelf, showed it to Swami. He said it was an exact translation of the original manuscript lying in the uh, monastery of Lhasa. The original is in Pali. This is in Tibetan. It consists of 14 chapters, 224 couplets, and then he gets it translated. Okay? And that's this book right here, Uh, his book. Here's the thing. When he starts translating it, he has the exact same verse numbers in the section he's translating there as... Notovich did. Here's the problem with that. Note, this is a manuscript with 14 chapters. The question is, are they reading from him an ancient manuscript, or are they reading to him from Notovich's book? Look what Notovich said. Yeah, here's what Notovich originally said. He brought me two big books, yellow with age, and this document is compiled of isolated verses as placed very often, no connection, no relation to each other. The two manuscripts, they're disconnected, mingled with the other accounts of, that bear no relation to it. I have arranged all the fragments concerning the life of Isa in chronological order and have taken pains to impress on them a character of unity in which they were absolutely lacking. So if somebody shows something that has the same arrangement as what Notovich had, what they're showing is Notovich, not what Notovich purported to have gotten his stuff from. And they didn't even need to show him Notovich. They just read Notovich. So the Swami couldn't read Tibetan. When you read his book, he has to have the Lama translate it for him. So it could have been an old manuscript of how to make tea, you know, but they show him a manuscript and then they're reading to him from Notovich with Notovich's verse numbers, which according to Notovich, what he did wasn't in any one book. It was scattered, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, and had absolutely no organization. He provided all the organization, and that's that's what they read this one. What's the motivation here? What's the motivation here? Well, a couple of things. He made a lot of money selling books in the 1800s. Uh, and he was probably trying to be famous, like Tischendorf. And there's a couple of other things when we look at internal evidence. He changes things to his point of view. He he was Russian. He was from the Crimea. He was also Jewish. He exonerates the Jews from the death of Christ, and he takes away the resurrection and the miracles. Isn't that the bottom Um, line? One of the chief motivations of all of these so-called missing links or missing... Uh, manuscripts is to discredit the truth in the Bible yeah. or to sell a yeah. book or make profit. Now the, okay. And uh, Joseph Smith, what were, what was Smith's motivations? Did, did Smith really believe he found golden plates that told about Jesus in America? When you look at Joseph Smith's life, what seems to be his motive? Monetary. Yeah. Yeah, he originally told 
he originally told one of his witnesses that he had a prophecy that somebody in Canada would buy the copyright. This is way back early on. And, it seems and when, nobody would, when nobody would, he said, well, some prophecies are from, because they were puzzled, because he'd said in the name of the Lord, it would, the copyright would be sold. He said, well, some prophecies are from the Lord, some are from man, or some are from the devil. But yeah, he was planning to make money. And he used it for power, and he also used it. Ego, ego seems to me. Uh, yes. so, and, and I mean, that maybe that's a factor here too. I suspect so, yes. Um, Elizabeth Casperi, uh, she was a student of Montessori, was involved in the Montessori school system. She says the monk showed her the manuscript. And there you've got a picture, and he's got something. But the next screen will help us understand what's going on here. This is a Buddhist monk. Um, and I can't see his last name. Oh, yeah. Bante Damika. Right? This is a Buddhist monk. And you can go to his website. And this kind of tells you the whole thing. In 1989, I stayed at Hemis as a guest of a senior monk there and had the good fortune to witness the famous Hemis Festival. I asked my host about the Jesus story. He groaned rolled his eyes upwards, told me that Westerners often come to the monastery and ask about Jesus. Some of the younger monks string them along for both fun and profit. <laughs> wow. Wow. Hey, Scott, 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 Scott. Yes. You could save us a lot of time. Why don't we just get to this right at the outset? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a lesson here about document claims. Yeah. You can look at external evidence, internal evidence. Um, like internal evidence, just real quickly, just two things quick. Um, look, it says here in his history, in, in his supposed life, the unknown life of Christ that came from these merchants in the first century. Here's some of the history of uh, it gives. Pagans came to, to Israel from the land of Rommel's, and he says that's Rome, and they defiled the temples, forced them to cease to worship their God, and demolished their temples. He's got his history all wrong. And so in the book, he has the Jews asking Jesus where they're to worship since their temple is destroyed, since their temples are destroyed. And then here you have the priests are adoring Christ, um, they're trying to get Pilate to let him go. They're saying he's a just man. And then when Pilate's determined to kill him, the priests walk out and wash their hands saying, we are innocent of the blood of this righteous man. So that's the chief priest saying that. And then and another thing, he takes away the miracles, ends, has no resurrection. And so just finally, there's this. Romans says he's declared to be the son of God by the resurrection. Galatians says, if we or any angel from heaven preached to you a gospel contrary to the one which we preached to you, let it be accursed. So we got a question from a, a viewer who says, um, do we have any extra biblical evidence from the first or second century about Jesus from age 13 to 30? And the answer is no, we don't. And that's the thing where there is a vacuum of information. That's where people have the opportunity to let their imaginations run wild. And there is a mentality, there's a mindset that just uh, craves going after the unknown and filling in the gaps. Holly, Holly also get a, gave a comment about why does, wow, does this guy care that he led people astray? And I would say not at that time. No. Right. Not at that time. 
And there may be something to be said for the fact that in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, when Jesus comes to Nazareth and is rejected there by his own family even, uh, they say, um, this is his family speaking, but the people there say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Uh, that Jesus is referred to in that verse as a carpenter. And so it doesn't detail what Jesus was doing for those in the intervening time, but these are early documents and they kind of presuppose that Jesus is working as a carpenter during those right. years in, in between, which is one reason they're so surprised when Jesus comes and is saying these crazy things is that, wait a minute, isn't this the carpenter? You know, yeah. excellent, um, point, excellent point that that and other passages where you have the people of Nazareth and the people of Galilee feeling like they have familiarity with who this guy Jesus is and he's a nobody. Uh, but it indicates that, that he isn't somebody who's just shown up from India. He's somebody who's kind of grown up there and, and they don't think he's much to, to look at. And, you know, when you think about, um, and, and there's been other attempts to fill in the gaps besides this Shingo Japan and, and the India thing. Uh, in the hundreds of years after Christ, some of you have read the infancy gospels, which are nonsense. And those were attempts by people, say in the year 300, 400, whatever, uh, to tell what Jesus was like as a little boy. And people talk about this great mystery. What about those missing years? The patriarchs, sometimes we have descriptions of their childhood, like we say Isaac or Joseph as a youth. But most characters in the Bible, do we really have descriptions of their youth? The Apostle Paul. Who are some major New Peter? Testament? The Apostle Paul. Yeah, what was he like a kid? Yeah. Yeah, we know he was trained by Gamaliel, but beyond uh, that? Actually, actually, no, Libby and I were in Belize, and in Belize, there is this ancient Mayan uh, temple, and they have records there of Peter as a nine-year-old, um, and, uh, <laughs> Hey, prove it's wrong. Prove it's false. <laughs> uh, uh, Cassandra brought up a very good point. She says that the big lesson here is that each person is responsible to study with logic and sense, um, in seeking the truth is if that's what you want, the truth. Yeah. And we had a couple of, uh, the comments come in that this is just a very strange thing overall. Um, and that, uh, you know, trying to examine different theories like this is helpful as more and more people are buying into internet based conspiracy theories. Um, it, yeah. it really is re remarkable yeah. how many, if there's some gap in information or perceived gap in information, everybody's clamoring to get their story to be the next clickbait, the next big thing. Which, if, yep. if what you're saying is right, Scott, that may have been what Notovich was going for initially. That was before the internet, but... If, you wanted to be clickbait? If he can fill in the gaps, that's going to be what sells. Is that, yeah. that, uh, that puts so much emphasis on Paul's statement that, if, if I think it was Paul that said it, that if you don't love the truth, God's going to send you a what? A strong delusion. Which means... I'll believe, I'll believe a lie. If I don't love the truth, I'm going to believe the lie. So to, to cast Cassandra's point is, yeah, 
if you love the truth, then you're going to use logic and reason to seek it out and check it out. Yeah. With all these different conspiracy theories going around and, you know, just different, each idea wilder than the next. Sometimes I think about, I forget if it was Abimelech or whatever, when David feigns madness before him and says, do I lack madmen that you bring this guy in here? <laughs> uh, but uh, sometimes the internet feels like that. Uh, but yeah, this is a pretty, uh, I, I had never heard this Scott before you started doing your research on this. Um, but it's something that you know, my friend wrote this book and uh, he asked me to look at it. So I looked at it. And we're studying together. We've gone over one time, and he's he's getting to see some of the evidence. And but we we got only had a limited time, and so we're going to pick up on it here in a couple of weeks and, and get back to it. Sounds like the original Russian collusion to me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, there was some Russian collusion going on here for sure. Okay, all right. Just to wrap this up. Um, Go back to this real quick, just because tidy this up. So I stumbled over this, but what this says is <laughs> not that we care. And the Jesus, that's not unusual, <laughs> said to him, Yet one thing, that right there I was not catching, one thing to you lacks. And then right here, all things whatsoever, uh, whatsoever you have. So whatsoever you have, Poland, uh, so sell and give to the poor. All right. I just had to clean that up. So, okay. so, so Jeff, let me ask you a question. When you're reading that, are you re you're reading it in Greek and translating it into English at the same time in your mind? Yeah, not very well, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is the thing about when you're looking at these manuscripts, there are no spaces between the words as you see here. It's, uh, so it's kind of hard, and a lot of times there's abbreviations. Jesus is just two letters here abbreviated, and then they'll do things like right here. They'll draw a line at the end of a line, and that's a, it's not normally how you write the letter new or in, but uh, that's the way they would do it at the end of a line. So some of those things get pretty confusing. You mean that's not an apostrophe or a comma I see over there? Right here? Uh, this, there's some marks at the end of some of these lines, and this is, I can't see this clearly enough to see what they are, but no, uh, that's not, that's, that represents the letter new or N, and this mark here, I'm not sure what that is, but the word goes from here and then picks up down here. So, so not only do they do not use spaces, they use, they don't have punctuation mark. Oh, they don't have, um, what's that word? Punctuation marks, they, punctuation marks. They occasionally have some punctuation marks, but not regularly. And so you don't have a period to let you know you're at the end of a sentence. Wow. That's just, that would be hard to read. I mean, we, we, we need spaces between our words. Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> We've had a couple of questions come in. Uh, Cassandra also asked, can't the, can't the tense change meanings as well? That's true in English, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, Dana comments on this. This reminds me of how Jesus taught us to be critical thinkers. When he says things like the blind shall lead the blind and they both shall fall into the ditch. We should not be so, we should not so easily believe what someone says. They were believing their well-respected religious leaders. Jesus taught, taught us to be careful. Mm -hmm. uh, the, Ber the, the Bereans, they didn't even want to give Paul they didn't trust Paul exactly, right? I mean, they had to go back to the scriptures to confirm what he had said. So they even tested Paul. 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, Tim also asked, uh, do you know how old the manuscript is from Japan? And Scott, I'm not sure if you have a comment on that. Um, on so the, that, uh, well, it's since World War II. It's since World War II. <laughs> well, that's it, when it went missing. That's when it went missing, right? That's the thing. When they find Joseph Smith, you know, it's like asking what was the age of the golden plates that Joseph Smith dug up? That's assuming that Joseph, or what was the age of the manuscript that Notovich found in the monastery? He didn't find one. You know, the, the, the monk, the, the Lama in the 1800s said lies, lies, nothing but lies. In 1922, a Lama decided to take advantage of the situation and say, oh, yes, here you go. Um, so, um, but, you know, was there any, any manuscript in Japan? I, it seems to be just a tourist trap. Well, Christmas is a big deal. The thing, the, the thing about the thing, the thing of, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm bumping over you with the delay here. I'm sorry. That's right. The thing in Japan, that's yeah. not um, uh, a shrine or something set up to give uh, honor to Jesus, right? Uh, in a way, but not as that he's the Christ, that he rose from the dead and you should be a Christian. No, I think there's, by worldly standards, I think they said there's one Christian in town, but they've got they've got a tourist industry. They have two tombs there. One is the tomb of Jesus and one of it is the tomb of his brother where his brother's ear is buried because they say his brother took his place on the cross and Jesus took his ear after he was dead, brought his ear back to Japan. And so here's where Jesus is buried and here's where his brother's ear is buried. And here's the museum and you can pay some yen. So that, that place in, in Japan is kind of like my house. The house Libby and I live in is built in 2007. But we get a lot of tourists in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And it would be kind of like if I got some uh, road signs, some very well-done road signs, and posted them at the intersection near our house and pointed the way Washington slept in the house, fifth house on the left, and then go down there and have various things put in there supposedly from Washington's life. And we'd have tourists coming through this house built in 2007. There you go saying, oh, I went to the house where Washington slept. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And you now have some supplemental income. Yes, yes. <laughs> Scott, I, Scott, I have a question for you. You had mentioned someone had said that in, in the theory that Jesus went to India to teach them that idolatry or something was not right. Uh, what, what was it? that In, in Nordovich's book, so what he does, first he gives a lot of his travel details and then he gets to the thing, and it's a very short text. The, the Unreal Life of Christ is not very long. It gives some false history of the Jews, like, for instance, the Joseph, the Israelites were taken captive by the Egyptians and brought down in bondage. So it messes up Old Testament history, too. Very briefly touches that. Then it gets to the other things, and the detail you just mentioned was, what was it? About Jesus mind. teaching the era of the people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then Jesus at age 13, mm -hmm. the, the book goes to say that Jesus at age 13, well, in Notovich, uh presupposes and describes uh, too, that G, he, he thinks a lot of fellas would have been wanting Jesus for a son-in-law because he makes a big deal. This is like the last descendant of David, you know, it, I think Jerusalem would have had a number of descendants of David. 
But um, so everybody wants their daughter to marry Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to get married. So he goes away to India. First, he spends six years with the Hindus. It takes him a while to get there, of course. And he spends six years with the Hindus and he tries to teach them against idolatry and tries to get them not to treat the untouchables badly. Then he goes up and he spends six years with the Buddhists and he seems to learn from the Buddhists. And then, but he doesn't do any miracles and he advises people not to listen to miracle workers. Nobody's working any miracles. So he, he comes, it says Jesus is the Christ, but he's, he takes away the supernatural. Uh, back in the Red Sea, he takes away the supernatural. He said, the Israelites went above the sea and the Egyptians tried to scoot across the edge at low tide, and then the, it came in. So he tries to take away the supernatural. He's, he's got its various agendas. So I have to confess, I, I did not think we could spend an interesting 45 minutes talking about this, but we're out of time, and it was interesting. <laughs> it was. Well, the first four minutes were a waste of time, and that was my fault, and I apologize, everybody. Uh, i tell you what, I want to mention this. This is, this is something interesting. We showed a while ago the Isaiah scroll from before the time of Christ. Now, when the, when the King James Bible was done, um, our old, and uh, really most of our translations were done, when a lot of our translations were done, they were based largely on the Leningrad Codex of about 1009 AD, um, a Masoretic Hebrew text. In the Dead Sea Scrolls was found the Great Isaiah Scroll. And it's, it's from over a thousand years before. And I want to just give you an example of how close the texts are. This, so this is from the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, of before the time of Christ. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? One difference. Some manuscripts, uh, one of the uh, manuscript variants is on whom. Uh, it says, like a root out of dry ground, uh, let, let me drop down here. Surely he has borne our sufferings, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. And some manuscripts have the word and, some don't. And that's that's over a thousand years apart. And it's just, uh, here's one slight difference, and I want to read this. Uh, they made his grave with the wicked, and with rich people, in one manuscript in the Dead Sea Scrolls says, with the rich in his death. Yeah, a rich man. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his tomb. That's, the re- that's one of the readings from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is even more specific than the Masoretic text a thousand years later. So the bottom line here is we have a lot of evidence that we can be confident on the documentation we have is what was written. And there are other, I mean, the book of Jeremiah has more variations uh, significantly so and so, but just that Isaiah 53 is just, just remarkable. Well, everybody, uh, I think we better close it up. We're a little bit past our time. I want to thank you, Scott, for that fantastic, what do you want to call that information that I was not aware of it. Gentlemen, have a good week. Everyone in the audience, thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to seeing everybody next week. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye.